You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Father God, you are glorious. All honor, wisdom, strength, and power be to you, to your dominion, for now and forevermore. God, allow us to see your gospel clearly. Allow us to see your glory clearly. Allow us to give you praise and worship that you deserve. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God, you are famous. You are glorious. You go before us, and God, you sustain us. Thank you for who you are. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, good morning, Harvest. Hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas and a great New Year. Can't believe it's already 2019. If anyone else is with me on that. Uh, as we begin this morning, let's go ahead and turn turn with me to Acts 17 and uh, kind of put your, your place marker there and then turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And this morning, we're going to begin a new series called Now and Forever, Living for Christ's Return. We'll be looking into Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. And so here's, here's, the, here's the question I just want to kind of pose to you as you, you kind of get to this place. Um, and as a quick side note, if you, if you need a Bible, just go ahead and pop your hand up real quick. We have ushers coming down the aisle um, willing to give you a Bible so you can track with us this morning. Um, here's the question. Have you ever heard something that, that changed you immediately? It's kind of a rhetorical question on that because everything everyone kind of does, right? But th- that one thing that has changed me is like, I think we all have those moments and we all have those moments where we say like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Or we have those moments where we're like, all right, well, I never thought about that before. But here, have you ever had those moments that it was like immediate life change? It was, it was mind blowing and actually like soul invoking. Like, and after you heard it, you became immediately transformed and changed because of it. Right? I, I know, I think we all, we all have, and for some of you guys, this might be a philosophy on life or health or, or relationships, and I'm going to say that like nothing too crazy, right? <laughs> just, uh, just, just things that have a good platform, right? And when I say this, like, here's the Mikito people, all right? Uh, when, I, when I say that, but um, you, usually these things that, that are said, look, they're usually simple, and they're usually mundane, and, but they're life-altering, right? And, and many of mine have actually found themselves uh, into the front part of, of my Bible. I just want to read a few to you. Um, not that they, These are just things that I've heard that have changed kind of philosophy of, of how I do things. Now, I understand these, this is probably for years and years and years of, of understanding, right? But philanthropy, philanthropy does not negate heresy. That was a good one for me. When God is doing his work, he is under no obligation to give us the details. <laughs> and here's, here's one of many, right? But unbelievers are more shocked by our silence than offended by our message. And so I, I, like, I hear those things and they, they mess with me because they had an immediate impact of, of how I thought or how I, how I did something. Now, and, and here's the reality. For, for a lot of us in this room, everyone's going, hey, Andy, what about the gospel? Like, the, the thing that we heard that changes immediately was the gospel, right? Maybe not our habits immediately. Hear me when I say that. Maybe not our habits immediately, but, but how we view our habits in light of this life-altering gospel. 
And so we're, we're looking at this, this letter from Paul to the church at Thessalonica. Now some backstory because we're just kind of jumping into this series, right? Thessalonica is, is a city much like our own. Roughly 200,000 people filled with sailors and tradesmen and people of different ethnicities and, and religious backgrounds and situated on the edge of a sea. It's pretty close to St. Catharines, right? And then, and then we, we see this, but it's also filled with religious pluralism and, and a cultural moral relativism of kind of like just like, you know, what's good for you and maybe not for me and a, a time of confusion and a time of, of corruption and a time of, of, of people in need of a radical shift of their hearts and lives and their minds. Again, I think that's pretty close to us. And maybe not just us, but I think looking at the landscape, the greater landscape, it's kind of where we all find ourselves, right? And, and, and the, the, the enemy knew of the, the potential of the church at Thessalonica. It was a, a trade route. So once the gospel sunk into this trade route, it was going out quickly from that point on. It was going out quickly from, from those people who were taking their, their work or, or their, their, their trade or whatever from, from Thessalonica to all over the world. This is why Paul strategically picked places like these port cities because immediately what happened is the message would come in and then it would leave and it would, it would actually accomplish the work that he was quickly trying to do. And just as the enemy knew the potential of the church at Thessalonica, he actually knows the potential of the church of the, the collective Niagara area. And here's the thing, that's why we can't shrink back from the gospel church. This is why we can't shrink back from the things that need to be said. And so, you know, we, we look at this like, in the midst of this, in Acts 17, like this, Paul, as he visits the church at Thessalonica, he, he's on his second missionary journey. And, and 1 Thessalonians actually doesn't start in a standalone letter. It actually goes the whole way back to the backstory of Acts 17. And so here's, I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to kind of walk through this. It says, now they had passed through. Amphipolis and Apollonia, and, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and, and Paul went in, as was his custom. And, and on three days' Sabbath, I'm sorry, on three Sabbath days, he, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to raise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, look at this, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason had received them, and, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king who is Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. That's the beginning of the church at Thessalonica. And so what do, what do we see, right? We, we see Paul and Timothy and Silas who, who became passionate about the advancement of the gospel. They went to, on their second missionary journey, to this port city of Thessalonica. He preached for three days, as was his custom. But then we see what? Many people followed. Some devout Jews, many, many Greeks. It says not, I love the wording here, not a few of the leading women, which means a lot. I don't know why they just didn't say many. That's a whole other story, Right? So, so these, these people had prestige, the, the Jews, look, I love this line. This is one of my favorite lines in scripture. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Like, I love that line because it gives you the, the immediate sense of the impact of the gospel. That they're going, that, that Paul is taking this, this gospel message and taking it into these cities that, are, that, that need radical transformation and sharing a life-giving message and gives them immediate life transformation. 
And the Jews aren't like because they say, look, you're, turning our, you're messing up our system. You're turning our world upside down. Like, what, we're, we're the ones that are supposed to tell people what to do and who to follow and what to say and what to think. But, and you're coming in here and giving this complete opposite message. Like, you're, you're kind of you're messing it up. And so the Jews, you know, as you can read, they extorted money from Jason, their host, and Paul, Timothy, and Silas. They fled then to Berea. I'm not going to read the, the rest of Acts 17 because it could be pretty long, but the, when they received, went to Berea, the Jews in Berea actually listened and reasoned with Paul, Timothy, and Silas. But you think that's a good start? But then the Jews at Thessalonica, because people can't keep their nose out of everyone's business, right? That's how we are, we are right? They, they came and stirred up the city, and then Paul, again, was sent then to Athens because of the uproar, and then eventually sent to Corinth, where he, he waited, in Acts, Acts 18.5, right, where he waited for Timothy and Silas. And so it is, it is here that Timothy and Silas reported to the church at Thessalonica, to Paul, that they were suffering, but they were doing well. They were a church that was being beaten, bruised, and broken, but they were doing well. And, and we, we see that, but here's the thing. Some of the Christians in, in Thessalonica have actually passed away. Now, I don't, I don't know exactly the amount of time between when Paul was in Thessalonica to when the report got back to Paul, uh, but we know that, that some of the Christians in that church had actually passed away, whether it's from natural causes, from persecution. We're, we're, I'm unsure, but here's the thing. They started... Timothy and Silas went, hey, look, they're, they're doing well, but they're, they're having some questions, some real deep theological questions like, you know, what happens to those who die before Christ's return? And, and, and they, they start asking, like, what is the day of the Lord? And, and, and like, how, how can we actually have holy living? And I think if we're honest, those are some questions that even us today still have because those are really theological, crazy concepts. Not crazy in like a bad way, but like there's so many different positions hitting you from all sides that, that we're like, where do I land on these things? And so that's kind of where we're walking through. And just like the church at Thessalonica is asking these same questions, us too are asking those same questions. What is the day of the Lord? Like, when is Jesus returning? What's that going to look like? What is the rapture? Is it singular event? Is it two different things? What, what does it look like? What is the, the thousand-year reign? All these different eschatology questions, these, these questions about end times begin to wrap in our minds. And like I said, this series is, is now and, and forever living for Christ's return. And, and here's a blunt fact, and I'm just going to start with this. If you are someone who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation, you are not living for Christ's return. You can't be. You cannot be living for something you don't believe in. And if you are that person who's not put their faith and trust in Christ, that cannot, like hear me, cannot be you. You cannot be living for something that you yourself have not owned and believed in. But there's good news, and this is how the gospel works. This is a long sentence, so I'm going to read it, right? But sinful people who are acting in sinful ways, who come into the sovereign contact of God through the mouths of men, and who in turn receive salvation through the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives through confession and belief in Christ. Then, in lining up their lives of that, of what God's expectations are, they turn away from their sinful ways and begin to pursue God's design for their lives. That's the gospel, right? The gospel changes people and should change you. Listen, once for your salvation and daily for your life. 
The gospel should change you one time for salvation and daily for the rest of your life. Because as we look at the glory of Jesus and the gospel of what he gives us, we know it is sufficient for our salvation once, and we know that it is a guiding pinnacle aspect of our lives from now on. And church, if we are a people who don't line up our lives with the gospel, we just think it's a one and done deal, we're missing the beauty and the glory of King Jesus in what he actually does in our lives. And so that's how the gospel works. Now, now looking back at Acts 17, before we jump into 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see a few things that the gospel brings. Because if we, we have to start here. The gospel brings, here's the first thing, the gospel brings motivation. The gospel brings motivation. So Acts, it says that Paul, they, they passed through these cities and they came to Thessalonica and then he he went to the, where there's a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and for three Sabbath days, he proclaimed the gospel. So what was his custom? To, to reason with the Jews through the scriptures about the validity of Jesus. And people saw, look, Paul saw people coming to Christ throughout his first missionary journey, hence the motivation to go out again, where he felt God calling him to Macedonia and the churches down there, or to, to plant churches there. He saw the change in people. He understood his own conversion on the road to Damascus. He saw the glory of Jesus firsthand, and he was only responding to the one thing that rocked his world. Paul, Paul had everything going for him, church. You hear me on this, right? He was, he was a zealous person. He was a Jew of Jews. He, he was from the, the right line. Like By all means, he had everything together and on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, Jesus himself interfered with that. And he says, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says, who are you, Lord? And at that moment, Saul, who later became Paul, knew he had messed up. And he knew that there was something else happening. And he was, he was responding in a way that he only knew how. And church, some often, like, if, if that's the way that Paul responds to the glory of King Jesus, how come we don't respond that way? How come we're okay with just sitting and doing and, 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 and sitting and kind of receiving and, and not being sent? And that's the thing that kind of scares us sometimes is that we're, we're okay with like understanding our conversion on a rational level, but then not really understanding it on a heart level and doing something about it, right? So we, we gain motivation when we see results. Has anyone ever lost a significant amount of weight? Just put your hands up. I, I mean, I have. That's why I asked that question. Some of you guys are like, I'm not telling you about my weight loss, right? But look, I, I used to play Jesus in, in, in my old church uh, in a play called Easter Praise. And it was like this huge, like, cantata kind of deal, like full crucifixion scene. And I had, I, every year, I did it for three years. Every year before him, I lost 25 to 30 pounds. Because I'm like, if I'm going to be half naked in front of the church, I'm not going to look chubby, right? That's just here, honesty bearing my soul. I'm sorry, all right? But that's the truth. And in my weight loss, I got to this place where I'm like, I'm looking kind of good. And Andrea goes, you are. You're not chubby anymore. I'm like, great, thanks. All right? And, and, and so, but I start, but then here's the get. So we have motivation, but then we, we stop because something stops us. And usually it's ourselves going like, I really want that French fry. It's usually what it is, right? So, like, things like weight, like, once you see the results, it keeps you going, right? Like, we're, I'm an NFL guy, right? And so, NFL's in the playoffs right now, and you see people coming out of the woodwork to support their team that they haven't supported for 15 years, so they finally made the playoffs. 
right? And, and you see the motivation of like, go team. Like, I haven't seen you in years. Who are you, right? And, and that's the reality. Like, or even like if, you, if we're playing hockey, like the, the better that your team is doing, the more motivated you are to, to work harder and to do something about it. Paul saw transformation through the gospel and he was doing something about it. He was having motivation by seeing this. And here's the question. Some of us have stopped sharing the gospel because we haven't seen results. We haven't seen, we're like, I haven't seen the results any, so it must not be working. That, that's, Jesus is not a lucky rabbit's foot, all right? The gospel doesn't operate in that way, right? Just because we haven't seen results in the way we want it doesn't mean it's a waste of time. Doesn't mean it should kill your motivation, Sometimes, look, if we stop sharing the gospel, we're not going to see results in that either way. So why stop sharing? Here's the thing. Know your motivation should be your obedience to the Lord and not what it brings you. The gospel should not be something that you just, we, we flippantly just kind of throw out or want to talk about from, from time to time. No, it needs to be something that we are constantly doing in obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ and not something that we do just to gain credibility within ourselves. It's not about us. Right? And so we, we see that like the gospel brings motivation. If, if, it wasn't, if it wasn't true and Paul didn't truly believe this in, in, in the depths of his soul, why would he keep on going out two, three times to share the gospel with these cities and uplifting these churches? And we're like, well, and it's because he believed it. Good. So how come we aren't doing the same thing? Because if we believe it, and, and Paul believed it, and Paul's response was to go and share the gospel, how come we're content with not going and not sharing? The gospel brings motivation to us. But here's the thing. The gospel church, and this is what some of us don't like. This is why we stop sharing. The gospel brings hostility. See, the gospel brings hostility. The Jews were angry and started a mob. There's no way around that, right? And, and this is, like, it's sometimes still done this way. In churches across the world, like, they, they start a mob. Like, my, my brother-in-law right now serves as a missionary in South Asia. And, and he, he tells these things firsthand about these mobs. There was, there was uh, in India, some few days before Christmas, mobs that came up into churches in India and started, started persecuting the church and beating Christians. And, and that's the reality. It's going to create hostility. It's still done in, like, the form of, like, a mob rule and beating. But sometimes it's going to be done in censorship or calling biblical values bigoted or hateful. Right? Now, now, don't get me wrong. Like, even a Christian can, can present a biblical value in ways that Christ never intended, a.k.a. with no compassion. Right? So we need to show truth and love. We need to care for other, other people. But here's the scary thing within hostility. Is that the gospel forces us to confront our own idols in our own lives. And we have to make a choice whether we're going to pursue godliness or not. We all have that choice daily. Are we going to pursue godliness or not? It's odd to think that the gospel brings us to hostility with ourselves, but it does. It's true. Church, follow me here. If we are constantly taking our idols, I love how John Owen said this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's no way around that, that biblical truth. And the gospel will bring hostility, sometimes in, in the framework of your coworkers. Sometimes in the framework of students, sometimes in the framework of your friends at school, sometimes in the framework of your teachers, sometimes in the framework of, of who we are collectively as people, it's going to bring us hostility in some way, shape, or form. Like, it's scary to think that we have to be okay with that, but the truth is we have to be okay with that. Even for me, like, that's a gut check for me, because you know what the expectation for me here is? Is to tell you these things, because I'm a pastor, 
That's what the expectation is. But when I leave these walls, when I, when I leave this building, when I'm out in public, do people know that I'm a pastor? No. So I need to have all the more resolve within me to share the gospel. Now, the, the bummer thing about having the title pastor on your quote-unquote job resume, I hate to say it that way, but you know what I mean, is that when your neighbors meet you for the first time, hey, I'm Andy, hey, I'm Steve. That's actually my real neighbor's name, by the way. He's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, he's like, what do you do? He's like, oh, I'm in IT. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, I haven't seen him since. No joke. He pulls in his driveway, and I'm like, hey, Steve. Okay, he's like, books it inside, right? Now, I don't, that's not really hostility. You're just kind of avoiding or just kind of who he is, I, whatever, to each their own, right? But that's, that's kind of the, the view that we get on these things, right? But so we know that the gospel, it brings motivation. The gospel brings hostility. But here's the sweetest thing of all, church, that we need to know. The gospel still brings salvation, right? And so if we know that, like, why were the Jews mad? Because Paul was presenting the gospel with urgency and clarity and reasoning from their own scriptures about the glory of King Jesus, and they responded. That's why. See, I think too many of us, like, follow me here. Church, the gospel still has power, and I think that we'll all admit that on some sort of level, but we need to stop acting like we don't trust in its power, we need to stop acting like we, we, we don't trust in this power, like it's only something that we talk about with other believers. It's like that really weird joke that, that the family makes about grandma that the family laughs about, but you don't talk about it with anybody else because they just won't get it the same way. Sometimes the gospel is like that joke within, within the church where we're like, oh, we can talk about it here. It's safe, but once you leave, shh. They won't, they won't, uh, those people won't understand I believe Paul writes in Romans, how will they understand unless someone tells them how sweet are the feet of those who bring good news? Church, the gospel brings salvation. There's no way around that. And I think as a church, like sometimes, and this is, I'm speaking to myself when I say this too, but we need to be more bold in our proclamation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to, to not really, we need to stop worrying. We need to be more focused on the motivation of obedience to Jesus than the hostility that can come from some sort of persecution. Because let's be real. Church, while we have the opportunity to not get beat when we proclaim Christ's name in public, let's take it. That's, that's just a thought. And that comes, that comes from all of us, and, and that needs to come from like that. It's weird to me that we default to talking only about godly things with people who believe in godly things. Now, some things on that, yes, that's going to happen because there's a time and a place to talk about specific aspects of your walk with Jesus, but we can't be okay with just kind of like flippantly throwing it out there. And so those are the things that the gospel brings, and we see that line again, these men. If you write in your Bible, underline and highlight that line. For, for these men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And my prayer initially in this is that we would be that type of church, is we would be that type of people where people would be like, ah, they're turning our world upside down. And because we, we have this, this reality that the gospel brings salvation, church, and we can't be okay with just saying, yeah, we know it does it, but guess what? We are the ambassadors of Christ that are sent to do it. This is God's plan A, the church, right? And so we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And we know that, that you guys have heard this all before, that, that the gates are not an offensive weapon, they're a defensive weapon. And sometimes I wonder if the devil's leaning on his gate going, are they coming today? 
And, and so that's just the, the reality of all these things that the gospel brings with that in mind, with, with the foundation of where Paul was, he's now going to hear a report back from Timothy and Silas saying, look, they're doing well, they're being persecuted, but they're, they're, they're standing firm in the faith and they're doing okay. Like, but the, you know what, Paul, like, they have some questions. They have some serious questions. So here's what Paul writes. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians now, chapter 1. He says this, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus is another name. Uh, Silas and Silvanus are the same person. All right, it says, To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power in the Holy Spirit and full of conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. How is that for an introduction to a letter? How is that? This is what we can see from the church at Thessalonica, and this is the challenge that we're going to be putting on all of us this morning, is the church at Thessalonica was a church of genuine conversion. They were a people of genuine conversion. How do we know that? We see it immediately in this first chapter that they were a people that were changed. They were people that were walking with the Lord, and they were a people that counted the cost. Right? We, we see this verse 1. It says, Liz, hello from us, look, grace to you and peace. That's Paul's greeting of love to them. Look, verse two and three says this, we give thanks to God for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father of your work and faith and labor of love and steadfast of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, understand this, genuine conversion has evidence. If you are genuinely converted and genuinely following Christ, you have evidence. There's evidence here. What do we know? First things first is that Paul gives thanks and constant prayer for them. Paul is a spiritual father to the church at Thessalonica. See, so would we pray for our children? I would hope so, right? And, and as such, Paul prays for, for, for his spiritual children. He prays for them. He lifts them up. Here's the, the first thing you can, that, that we can challenge ourselves with. Are we a church that's constantly in prayer? I'm thankful to say I feel like a lot of time we are, and we need not stop. I love that this is a church that is soaked in prayer. I love being a part of a staff that soaks their meetings in prayer, and a church that has prayer meetings that's, that are fairly well attended, and, and a group of elders that soak this church in prayer and soak you in prayer. I'm thankful for a church who, who soaks their pastors in prayer. I'm so thankful for that because we can't do this on our own, nor would we really want to try. And so Paul says that we give thanks for you, praying for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. 
remembering before our God and Father. Look, there's three things here. The work of faith, the labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So we see this. The assurance of salvation is based on biblical evidence. Your faith, look at me, your faith will make you think, feel, act different. And if it doesn't, you need to reevaluate where you are in your walk with Christ. If you accepted Christ and nothing, nothing of your life looks different than how it was before Christ, you need to evaluate your salvation. That's just a truthful fact. We cannot experience Jesus and not change because of him. Church, understand me, when Paul was gone, or when at that time Saul was on his road to Damascus, do you think he, he had scales in his eyes and a, blight, a, a, a white blinding light? And then, and then when his scales fell off, he goes, that was interesting, and went on his merry way? No, he was changed. Every person you see in Scripture is changed in one way or another when they encounter Jesus. Does everyone accept Christ? No, but they are impacted because of him, because a lot of these times they go away weeping because he has called them to something different than what they wanted to hear. And so a genuine church has, uh, a genuine conversion has, has evidence. And so what biblical evidence do we have about the church at Thessalonica that Paul says, how do we prove this in court? Paul says it was their work of, love, or their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfast hope. Like these are the marks of grace that prove salvation, okay? And I want, look, understand this too, because this is where people get really wonky on, on some theology stuff, right? Paul is not saying that there are works that we must do to obtain salvation. Track with me, yes? Yes. There's nothing that we bring to the table that gives us salvation. Only Christ. I'm making that very clear because when we read that, oh, like, wait, remembering of our work of faith? We have to work for our faith? No. You notice he says work of faith, not works of faith. And there's truth there, right? It's like when we look, read Galatians 5, right? It's not fruits of the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit. But there's a lot of them listed, which tells us what? That they're all linked, and as one increases, naturally so do the others. So, so some of those things come more natural, but it doesn't change the, the need that we need to grow in them all, right? And the church was growing in an astounding way in the gospel, the church was changed, and it was evidenced by what Paul was saying. You work in Christ. We work because we are in him, not because we're trying to earn him. That's making that clear, all right? And so what does Paul mean in the work of faith? I love how, how, it's not on the screen, but there's a commentator named Richard Phillips. He says this, the apostle has in view a life of increasing fruitfulness and obedience to God's instruction and commands in the Bible. So when he says work of faith, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the, the growth of obedience and increasing fruitfulness in the life of the church of Thessalonica. And so we see that. That's the first thing. We are all a work of faith for a working faith. That's who we all are collectively. We all experience the work of faith because we have a working faith. Here's the second thing, labor of love. Right? He says that you're a work of faith and your labor of love. This points to a sacrificial love that goes beyond the ordinary. Church, hear me. That goes beyond the ordinary, a.k.a. goes beyond loving your family. That goes to loving strangers and showing hospitality. Like this labor of love goes beyond. Like the church in Thessalonica is served in, above, and beyond ways that serve their Lord well. We, we have, we've had that experience, like labor of love. Their love has arisen from their faith. And when we think about labor of love, what does that mean? It means that we are doing something because we want to, because we love something, we care for it, not because we're going to get anything back from it. 
If you ever know someone who's ever restored a car, they always call it the labor of love. Why? Because if they ever go to sell that car, they're not going to make their money back. It's not about making their money back. It's about doing the thing that they love because they love doing it. It's a labor of love. In the same way, look at me, church. In the same way, our love for Christ is a labor of love. We, we're not doing it because we, we want some, something back from him. We do it because he is the almighty God, and that's your only response to him is to do that. And so many of us, we're trying to earn that. We're trying to be like, God, look, I did something for you today. Are you, are you happy? It's like my kids, when they clean up their room, then they come down to me because they want a treat. It's the same mentality, and it's a wrong mentality. We should do these things for Christ because we love Christ, because we care for Christ, because we want him to be known, and we don't care. If God blesses us out of that, great. If he doesn't, we still give him the glory. And too many of us aren't okay with that. We're like, but, but you don't understand. Like, I lived a good Christian life. I should be rewarded. You will in eternity. Congratulations. It's not about the here and now, church. It's about serving the Lord as a labor of love because it's not about what he gives us. It's about the glory we respond to him in. And here's the last thing. He says, your work of faith, your labor of love, and look, steadfastness of hope. Now, we, we just got out of a series talking about hope and love, joy, and peace. I'm not going to dive too deeply into what this hope means, but that word steadfastness, I love the military implication of that term, which literally means firmly fixed. Steadfast is really a military term that means you're firmly fixed, which means that when the enemy is coming towards you in an all-out charge, you're not turning your back and running away. You're standing shoulder to shoulder with other soldiers, and you are firmly fixed in your position, ready to take on the battle. That's why, one, we need each other, church, to live a Christian life. We need each other to, to guide us and hold each other accountable and actually to speak hard things. And I know that that's weird in this culture because we have this, like, you can't tell me what to do mentality for all of us, even us in church, even me. Like, I, I, when people tell me that, I, I kind of buck up against them. I'm like, you don't know me. You can't tell me what to do. And that's when my wife goes, I've married you and I've known you for a long time. I can tell you what to do. <laughs> right? But, but those are the things in a stand firm, stand firm way, in a steadfast way, that we need to think that we are shoulder to shoulder together collectively for the glory of King Jesus. Look, understand this. The church at Thessalonica was not a church that was, that was sitting around and milling grain and having a grand old time. They were a church that was constantly in the midst of suffering and persecution, especially by the Jews in their city. How do we know? Because Paul stirred them up when he was there. Do you really think just because Paul left, they stopped persecuting the Christian church? Oh, he's gone. Oh, we'll let them be. That's not how it works. And so we understand it's like hope is not a resignation to our current surroundings, but rather receiving what God has promised. What has he promised us? Hope in him, salvation through him. Hope allows the believer to persevere in the promise that God has given through the salvation in Christ. That's it. That's what hope is. We persevere through the promise and salvation of Christ. That's our hope. Sometimes that's all we have to hold on to in life. And sometimes that's what we need to hold on to in our lives. So we know that conversion has, has evidence, and we also know that conversion, look, begins with God. 
Conversion begins with God, right? And we know this. Like, Look at verses four and five with me. It says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in his word but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with conviction. Look, you know what kind of men we are proving to be among you for your sake. This is a Trinitarian passage. Like, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God gives the Father. God the Father gives us the plans of salvation and the redemption of humanity through Christ. And Christ accomplishes that work and the spirit is indwelling and supplies the believer with the power and means of a godly life. So hear me when I say that, church. You are not on your own to live a godly life. You have the spirit indwelling within you that you have the ability and the power to say no to sin and to say yes to Jesus. You have the power with the spirit to say no to wickedness and yes to Christ. And that's important because I think a lot of it sounds like we forget that. I mean, I'm powerless. No, you're not. You have God inside of you. What are you telling me? You're powerless. But I, I just can't. Like, it's just too much. Run from it. The Spirit is provoking you to, to run from it, not to run to it. And so we, we see this like this. The, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Like, though we often don't understand that, and like, I still struggle at times to understand that, look, there's no way around the word chosen. Because in the Greek, it means chosen or appointed. There's no way around that. So what, is, what does Paul mean? I'm going to say this. God initiates salvation. I think it's a fair statement to make, right? We cannot do this. Paul makes this clear that we are all blind until God reveals himself to us, right? Look, we don't search out God on our own. Okay? We don't come to God on our own. Honestly, nor do we want to. That's not a natural default of the human heart. Okay? When I wake up in the morning, I have to choose to follow Jesus that day, and I have to choose to say no to sin. All of us have to choose to say no to sin and yes to Jesus daily, but the salvation is initiated through God to take the veil from our eyes that we would see him and his glory clearly. Right? And so we, we think about that but I like this, Paul's, Paul's use of the word chosen or appointed, right? In the same sentence with the power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That gives me a deeper meaning of what this actually is saying, right? Because we see this, we must have a transformed life as an evidence of Christian salvation. It's initiated by God, but requires an actionable response. That's what it lays out there. The spirit within us dwells within us that we now go and make action responses. Look, we don't change for salvation. We are changed as a direct result of salvation, right? And this is kind of like uh, everything, everything looks different, what I'm trying to say in your life. If anyone has ever fixated on the endless count of Facebook videos that seem to pop up one after another as you're hitting them, you'll, you'll probably have seen many videos with people seeing the colorblind glasses, Right? So what those are, if you haven't, is that there's actual technology now for colorblind people that they put these kind of sunglasses on, and it actually corrects the color through the lens that they can see the colors that we're seeing. Is the object that they're looking at still the same? Yes. Have they had something come into their contact to change their view? Yes. Are they now weeping because they see different colors and they see it more clearly? Yes. That is the corniest way, but the easiest way to say what's going on right here. People who, look, these videos, like, uh, look, uh, yeah, I'll admit it, right? Sometimes, like, <sighs> the end of those videos, right? Because you just, like, see a grown man weeping in his mid-40s because he can finally see color. I'm like, I, I, I see color all the time. Like, but here's the thing. Something radically changed his view. 
And because of that, he is now a changed person, right? And that's what the gospel is. We don't change for salvation. We are changed as a direct result of salvation. The gospel is the lens of what we see the world differently. It's the same world, but we see it in a different lens. And that's, that's where Paul's going at in this way. The Thessalonians had received true salvation. It was like the parable of the weeds where the word was received and not choked out. It was true. It was genuine. They received the word of God. Even, look, even under the suffering they endured. Church, how many people would see Paul standing next to you? You respond to the word. God initiates salvation in your heart. And then you're looking at the Jews coming to beat him up. How many of you would stand there going, I want to be beaten too? None of us. That's, let's just be real. All right, none of us would do that. See, look, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, look, at the end of this, they proved to be men who were changed, who were saved, okay? They proved that the element of their lives by being a godly example to the church at Thessalonica, they were not implying that they were perfect by any means, but they were men striving for holiness in their lives. That's where we need to find ourselves, yeah, we're not perfect. Trust me, I'm not perfect. Anyone been around me for five seconds can tell you that really quickly. But we must strive collectively for the glory of King Jesus. Verse six through eight. Look, we also so conversion has evidence. Conversion begins with God. Conversion changes us. Is kind of a, something I've been hitting pretty drastically, pretty hard. So I'm not going to spend too long on this point. But it says this: You became imitators of us in the Lord, for you received the word and look much affliction. Notice it doesn't say with much leisure. It says with much affliction you've received the word, but you had the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the brothers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only was the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This is one of the few places where Paul indicates that believers should imitate him as he imitates Jesus. He is a flesh and blood example of how others should live their life in light of conversion. And in light of the resurrection of Jesus, they received it with much affliction. There was no grace period, all right? There was no discipleship class. There was no how to handle persecution 101. There was none of that, okay? And that's important to know. They believed and they were changed. They were faced with the reality of their newfound obedience in Christ immediately, right? They quickly counted the cost of following Jesus and they had to quickly because I'm pretty sure the persecution factor started immediately, for some of us in here, you're taking a long time to count the cost of whether to figure out you're all in with Jesus or not. It is only by God's grace that you have that time with such leisure to consider counting the cost. This church had zero. For some of us, it's been years. And we're, we're playing around with trying to walk with Jesus, trying to be all in while being all out at the same time, and it just doesn't happen. We must move forward with letting the gospel change us. They became, Paul, Timothy, Silas, became an example to surrounding believers. Would we? Would we, right? Would our faith in Niagara spread in the face of persecution or would we become a body of believers who conform to a pseudo-gospel so we have relief? I think most of us collectively right now in this room would give, we'd give a big hoorah and we would say that we would take the persecution. If it really happened next week when these doors open, how many of you would actually be here? That's the truth. I'm not saying you haven't counted the cost, but I'm saying so often we're terrified of the unknown and we're terrified of this thing, persecution, and we're okay with it being a world away 
But when it's at our front door, what do we do? There's some uh, biographies written um, around the 1770s and, and the Revolutionary War about a lot of men who, in the American Revolution, I should say, and a lot of men wrote those things. The world is a world away, but what shall I do when it comes upon my doorstep? Right? There's a lot of, a lot of biographies about men in those times that, that say those exact things, and, and you can see very clearly which path that they, that they chose in those things. You know, we, we marvel at these house churches and, and brothers in Asia and the Middle East and we're like, they're being persecuted and we just marvel and we watch the news like, wow. Like, that's crazy, huh? Do you ever wonder what that would truly be like? I do. I wonder what that would be truly like. Not as a sense of like being morbid, but as a sense of like, would I stand I'd be like, yeah, like that, this is an honest perception from your pastor, right? Like, yeah, I, I think at the end of the, end of the day, I would definitely be standing. But don't think for a moment I wouldn't have those moments of like, well, it'd be a lot easier not to. And, and that's okay to think through, but the end result is what matters, right? And we, we get to that place. I, I think they, they were changed and their conversion was evidence. The church doesn't like it. Here's the last thing. Church, the genuine conversion, it'll cost us. It'll cost us. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols and served the living and true God and, and to wait for his sons from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul says that other churches are reporting on what God is doing in Thessalonica and how there is a large group of new believers standing firm. How motivating is that? The gospel brings motivation to stand firm. Already this church gained a reputation for being the one that is, that is serving God. And when we say the word cost us, we say it like it's a negative. We're like, you know, it's going to cost us. And that's going to cost us, mainly because everything in culture says that a loss to us is a negative, and maybe rightly so, but here's the thing. Everything that we do costs us. If you work out, it costs you energy. If you buy food, it costs you money. If you buy anything, it costs you money, right? Taking a stand might cost you something greater. Taking a stand for the gospel is not going to cost me anything because that's the expectation that you have on me. But outside of here, what will it cost me? The gospel is going to cost us. And we say that like it's a negative of church. Hear me when I say this. Everything that we do costs us something. And so often when it's, when it's money, it's okay because we just sit there and do this at it. Man, if, the, if conversion is going to cost us, man, let it cost us. If conversion is going to cost us something, let it, let it cost us something great for the glory of King Jesus. I'm not trying to say that as a way of just flippancy, but I'm saying that as a way of reality. Like if, if, if it's going to cost us, let it cost us. If we're going to live for something, let's live for something. Let's not sit there on the fence and culture go, who are you? Let's make a definitive statement of who we are. That's what the church at Thessalonica did. That's what they said. It's like, here's like, Paul's like, look, you, your faith is so, so wide. Guess what? Your faith is so wide that there's other churches in Macedonia hearing about you. That your faith is so wide that like you haven't even, like you're not touting yourself. There's other churches saying, look at their faith. I'm not saying that like we should strive for, for other churches to be like, look at Harvest Niagara. But what I'm saying is we should be in such a way that people turn their head and when they hear our name, they know who we are because they know what we stand for. Right? And so this is the, the reality that, that they, just didn't, they just didn't give up flippant things. Like the, Paul says this, you Turn from your idols to serve the living God. I love what Tim Keller says here. He says, idolatry is the reason we ever do anything wrong. 
Idolatry is the reason we ever do anything wrong. I'm going to expand on this. This could be pride. could be what else? What do we do? And what do we, we do what we want, and we do what we can to get what we want and to get what we can. So whatever sits on the throne of your heart is going to control what you do. I've shared with some of the students before, and I have a really cheesy analogy of this. It's heart's throne. Really cheesy analogy, but it gets the picture across of what sits at the throne of your heart is going to control what you do. Sometimes that's Jesus, and five seconds later, it's something completely else. What sits in the throne of your heart is going to, you're going to give everything to get it. You're going to give everything to get at it, and you're going to do anything to make it happen. If Christ sits at the throne of your heart, you will make some radical adjustments in your life in order to make that happen. Jesus, look, here's verse 10. We're going to end with this. It says, and to wait, look. So they turn from their idols to serve the living and true God. Amen to that. And to wait for his son from heaven. Right? This is the response that, that Paul is writing. It's like, okay, what happens? What are you waiting for? You're waiting for Jesus. Here we go. To wait for the son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That's a huge point because if Jesus is still dead in the ground, this is worthless. Right? Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Jesus died on the cross to remove the guilt of sin, and as sinners, we fear the divine wrath of God, and rightfully so. However, in Christ, we are spared God's wrath. That's 110, right? Here's this. Hebrews 9.28 says this. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who, eagerly, who, who are eagerly waiting on him. That's the hope that we have as a collective church, that we are not going to be coming face the wrath of God in him. We are coming because, or we are waiting for him because he is going to give us himself. Believers now look forward to his return with anticipation. The question is, do you? The church of Thessalonica was like, man, what's happening? Everyone, like, our friends are dying. Like, what's going to happen to them? And Paul starts answering that question. He goes, look, when he comes a second time, it's not for wrath. It's for his glory in the life of the believer. For those outside of Christ, it is his wrath. And for those who are sitting on the fence, we need to make a certain decision. The Bible speaks of eternity for those who are in Christ, for those who confess and believe in him. Until then, we proclaim the gospel, we guard our lives, and we serve the Lord well. Church, these are the marks of conversion, and I would encourage you to go and line up your own life with these things. Make sure that we are walking, stand firm in the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, you are glorious. God, you are worthy. God, and I pray that we would be a people who seek to bring you honor, who seek to bring you glory. God, I pray that for, for us in this room who are dealing with what it looks like to actually give our lives to you, God, I pray that you give us clarity, God. For those who are feeling the, the pull of the Spirit in their own lives, God, I pray that you would allow them to respond and receive the glory of King Jesus, God. God, I pray that you would make yourself known. As we sang earlier, all glory, all honor, Strength and power be to you. God, thank you for allowing us to come into relationship with you. Thank you for allowing us to understand the glory of Jesus. And God, 
I pray for those who are in Christ, that we would continue to pursue Christ, that we would count the cost even greater, God, that we know that the gospel is, is once for salvation, but for our lives daily. And I pray that we would wrap our lives around the beauty of King Jesus. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.